This is the Crux True Survival Story Podcast, and I am your host, Casey McIntosh. As usual, I will be joined by Julie Henningsen, and we have a special guest on the show, Alvaro Cerezo. Alvaro has created an incredible business called Do Castaway, and she transports his clients to desert islands, or as most of you may know them as deserted islands. He fell in love with the beauty and isolation the desert islands offer at a young age and has taken that passion and shared it with others who would never otherwise have that experience. Alvaro has had an interest in castaway stories since his childhood, and he has had the opportunity to speak to a number of castaways himself. One of these such castaways is Maurice Bailey. Alvaro had the opportunity to befriend Maurice and hear the story firsthand. Maurice and his wife, Marilyn Bailey, were a British couple who in 1973 embarked on a journey that turned into an extraordinary tale of survival. The couple sold all of their things and bought a yacht. Their intended journey in 1973 was from Southampton, England to New Zealand. They set sail on their 31-foot yacht with the plan to reach New Zealand, passing through the Panama Canal in February and heading towards the Galapagos Islands. However, their voyage took a tragic turn when their yacht was struck by a whale on March 4, 1973, leading to a series of events that resulted in their survival at sea for 118 days on a rubber raft in the Pacific Ocean. Join us today as we delve into the fascinating world of DeCastaway and explore an incredible story of Maurice and Marilyn Bailey, a testament to the will to survive, resilience in the face of adversity, and the unwavering support the couple provided each other to keep each other going against all odds. Alvaro, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Alvaro, and I was the founder of DuCastaway, which is a travel company that helps people to be alone on real desert islands, remote desert islands all around the world. And this company was created like 13 years ago. And during my explorations, I sometimes discover some real-life castaways that they are currently living on desert islands, voluntary. I'm also fascinated about real castaway stories, no? in the past, real survivors. So how much time do you spend out at sea yourself? At sea, not that much. I mean, on desert islands. And I, of course, I have spent so much time on islands since I first did it when I was only 19 in some desert islands in India. And yeah, it was like a voluntarily Robinson Crusoe, no? Like I voluntarily stranded myself on desert islands. And since then, it became a, like a passion and a hobby. And then I was surprised, no, that there was no company like this in the world that helps to be on a real desert island. So I decided to create it myself. Can you tell me what that experience is like? I was trying to picture going to a desert island. I don't know. It's sort of hard to imagine even being from Montana where we don't truly have a lot of people here. Being on a desert island is not that much of an adventure in terms of uh, people might think that being on a desert island is like having, you know, they're going to find wild animals, dangerous, and they'll have to like... They see and they watch in, in Naked and Afraid shows. All those things are not really happening on a desert island, you know. Desert island is a really uh, relaxing place, a really quiet place, away from the civilization. And uh, it's honestly, it can be, if you don't like loneliness and you need a lot of action to get entertained, I mean, you get bored easily, then you could get bored on a desert island because it's really a peaceful place. When you're on a beach, it's just quiet. Just see the sea. And I mean, of course, if you need to survive, you will be busy, you know, all day long. But nights are very long. Uh, in the equator, 
the tropical sunsets at 6 p.m. then 6 a.m. sunrise so you will have 12 hours of night and if you don't like loneliness and if you don't like to be with yourself it's gonna be long it's gonna be tough it's gonna be long nights definitely i heard something about a study where people had to sit they could either sit for 20 minutes by themselves quietly or they could get a, an electric shock and some insane percentage of people chose the electric shock so i think a lot of people don't like to be alone with themselves based upon that study anyway yeah exactly yeah uh, we have castaways that they decide to abandon the experience because we help people no? I mean, this is a business that we prepare the logistics we get we have the islands already we rent them we got the team to prepare the experience and we put one person on an island one or a couple no but there are many solo castaways and they spend maybe one week 10 days and many of them they cancel because they are too bored or too lonely or scared of loneliness, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about where in the world the islands are that you go to and also a little bit more about kind of what the experience is like for your clients, how they're supported or how they may choose not to be supported. I'd be interested in hearing some of those details. The islands are mainly in Asia because... It's not so far from Europe. I mean, most of our clients are from Europe and North America, but mainly from Europe. So it's not that far because going to the Oceania in the Pacific, is that's a really long trip. And desert islands are quite similar either in Indonesia or Polynesia. It's just a desert island. It's palm trees and I mean, it's not, our clients don't care where it's located. I mean, the sooner they reach, the better. And the cheaper, of course, no, because they are going to spend one week, 10 days, 15 days. And they don't want to spend three or four days just reaching there. And therefore, I think Indonesian islands, Philippine islands are quite convenient because flights are not so expensive. It's quite cheap going from Europe because there are many Arabic airlines nowadays. And the countries are not so expensive. So the experience is quite affordable for price of oil, I mean, price of workers and renting the island. Because islands, let's say Caribbean islands, they are highly demanded because it's quite near U.S., Mexico and countries that they really like being on an island. They like the concept to have a private island. So prices of private islands are really high in the Caribbean. And there is no much isolation in Caribbean, no, because you have sailing yachts and coming from Florida and they are sailing around and it's easy to find, it's easy to get to, to receive a visit of a foreigner, no, of and uh, our clients don't really want to see, they cannot really see someone like a tourist. Maybe they will accept to see a local fisherman because it's part of the environment, no? it's more exotic. But definitely they wouldn't like to see European people, American people on their island when they are completely alone and they are having this solo experience. It will completely destroy the feeling of isolation. That's why in Asia is quite a good combination of price and, and isolation and remoteness, I mean, you don't need to travel that long. You know, in two days, you could be on the desert island. No? It's two days going, two days coming back. You have 10 days holiday. You really cannot go too far. 
If you'd be willing to share, I'm just curious more about you. Where did you grow up and what drew you to this? It sounds like as a teenager, your first experience, what was your draw? I think everything started when I was little, when I was eight years old. I used to spend holiday in an area in the south of Spain, which is famous. I mean, it's quite popular because there is like a near national park and we have many secluded beaches, like touristy beaches, you know, like in the rest of Spain, you know, it's quite a touristy country. But there are some areas that there's an area where it is full of secluded hidden coves, you know, it's a mountainous area. And I used to go by myself when I was little, you know, sailing, or swimming, exploring, or just with whatever I find. And used to be on these remote beaches, hidden, hidden coves, without, of course, my parents didn't know about it. And I used to spend maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, and I mean, there alone. I mean, there was no one. And it was really special feeling, no? I remember I, I was imagining I was a castaway, also that I was reaching to a, a, a treasure island and there's a hidden treasure somewhere. And with my imagination, I make up a story and it was quite impressive. It was quite a strong experience, which it, I think it, it changed my life during the rest of my childhood, which it was my obsession to go to a real desert island one day. And this is what I tried when I became 18. It was the beginning of internet. We have DSL at home for the first time. And I checked, it was not even Google, it was with Yahoo or Google. And I was searching in search engines I was searching for a company who could, that could help me to be a real castaway, to go to other island, and of course it didn't exist, no? But it was my obsession, and I am really a tenant, so I decided to do it by myself. And I went to some desert islands in India, in Andaman Islands, and I spent a month in some remote areas, around remote islands there. Of course, islands that nowadays I would never offer to my clients. I didn't have information. I mean, I read some information in the internet, and it was very mild information. There's, there's no many travelers in that period. So I went there. This island, of course, I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't offer it to my clients nowadays because it was receiving so much fishermen every day. And it was not that far away from the mainland. But of course, it was amazing. You know, I was so young, and it was um, definitely was amazing experience. I didn't mind fishermen were arriving to the island because it was kind of also the experience, no, of interacting with Indian people. It started like it was like a spark for a new passion. Like it was my hobby going to a new desert island every holiday. I was also lucky that my brother was a flight attendant, so even. Despite I was a student in the university, I could travel anytime for little money. So I just needed money for the boat and drop me on an island. So I didn't really need much money. People were really surprised no, that I was traveling you know, all the time. But I was lucky with that. And also how much money you need on this island, just being there. You know, just survive from whatever you find there. You don't need to pay anything. It was just random desert islands with no owner. And yeah, I used to do this every year until I finished my university studies and then I check again. I definitely didn't want to work on a on an office having a definite a routine impossible, no? I this was clear. And I thought why I don't live from my passion, no? Maybe there might be some people wanting to do this, no? Like me. Because when I explained to 
to all their friends, they get very impressed. No, they always told me, wow, I would love to do something like that. It would be nice. I would love if you can show me these places so I can go. Can I go with you next time? You know? So I decided to check in Google if there was a company that I think maybe after six years, you know, they created now. But uh, no, still there was no company like that. So yeah, I decided to create it myself. It was no easy task because as there was no company, I didn't know what was going to be my potential clients. I didn't know if they, if they could even exist, no? I didn't know what they were going to demand, no? So it was a kind of trial and error. And it was a long process of starting the company because I needed also guinea pigs to try for the first time, you know, because I dropped people on a desert island, you know. It needed a lot of practice and a lot of trying, you know, until the experience started to work with the high quality and high isolation. And yeah, now everything is working perfect. What is your target client? Like what type of people do you have that use your services? And do you feel like there's quite a variety in the type of people that go on your experiences or are they kind of a similar type of person? We have many kinds of clients. It depends. We have two modes. I decided to create two ways to, to face the experience. One is survival mode and another one was comfort. The survival, it was it was of, for people who want to test themselves. This kind of people who want to test themselves is the people they like to be in the wild. They like to be hunting and fishing, spear fishing. And we have also another profile, which is couples that they just want to be away. And they just want to escape from mass tourist places, you know. And it's difficult nowadays because you can find tourists everywhere. And it's difficult nowadays to be on a place where you're going to be the only one. And I think that is very precious nowadays. And that is what we offer. Of course, it's a very complex company because one island, one client, and we don't make it expensive. Actually, the price is quite affordable for everyone, in my opinion. We are almost fully booked. We are not going to become rich with this business because we do this for a passion. I do this for a passion. I love exploring and I love castaways. I love desert islands and it's the perfect excuse to live from my passion. Yeah, I mean, we have many different kinds of clients and we have had many crazy clients who wanted to do very crazy stuff. We have clients who, with a very special personality, of course, and people who are very introverted or people that with very crazy plans and... <laughs> Definitely, we have found many special clients, and some of them became popular no, in the media because they were quite special. But we also have um, people who want just to be on an island to take uh, selfies and put on Instagram, you know, especially nowadays. So, yeah, we have many different kinds of clients. Well, I think it's pretty awesome that you're doing something that you feel so passionate about, especially coming from the United States, where I feel like most people do the exact opposite of what they're really passionate about. They just, you know, like, go to college, get a job, hate your job, live the next how many ever years of your life hating your job. So Julie and I are constantly trying to figure out how to reverse engineer that choice that we made. But thankfully for us, we met each other in graduate school. So if nothing else positive came out of it, that did so. Okay. What do you study, by the way? What, what is your major? 
We're physician assistants. Do you want to tell him what that is, Julie? <laughs> sure. It's it's kind of a uniquely American job in the healthcare field. It's not totally, there's Canadian and New Zealand and Dutch physician assistants, but we're called mid-level providers. So we provide medical care as a healthcare provider, but not quite a doctor. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah, definitely. It's a... Um... It's a vocational, you need to love it, no? To do, to be like taking care of people, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And I would say there's aspects of it that we do love, uh, but there's aspects of, I would say, the American healthcare system that we do not love, which, you know, you don't know about those things till you're a decade in and weary. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm actually an economist and I, I definitely didn't want to work in a corporation. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I studied that, but it was, I got it clear that I wanted to do something like what I'm doing now, but there's no studies for that. I don't know where to study castaways. Right, right. You got to kind of find your own way, which it sounds like you have. That sounds really exciting. And I agree with your comment that your, your experiences are reasonably priced. I expected a higher dollar sign when I looked at what you have to offer, but it's, it is quite reasonable. So it's accessible to, I'm imagining a lot of different people. Definitely. We have also, we have had many millionaires, but also we have students, you know, especially those who doesn't have so much money because they are really young. What we offer them is to go to test a new island as a guinea pig. So yeah, they, we need people like that. When we have a new island, it, it, it takes like one or two years sending castaways just to test how is the experience, how to improve, no? to have a decent amount of isolation when we offer it to regular clients. So those people that they don't have enough money to pay the experience, we even offer this possibility no? to test, to help us, to know how is the service. That's great. They're kind of your market testers. That's wonderful. How do you get permission to use these islands? Is that a difficult thing to do? It depends on the island. Some islands are owned by local fishermen, local people. Others are owned by government or they are protected from marine reserve, owned by militaries. It depends on the island. And what we can say is that in the beginning, it was really difficult and it was really hard to us because I was focusing on islands that were quite difficult. It was going to be difficult to make them work. The experience was now we focus on islands that they are easy and we know where to focus. And yeah, that saved us a lot of time. But definitely in the beginning, I it was struggling with local governments and a lot of regulations and a lot of failures. Uh, yeah, it was quite, quite difficult in the beginning. Yeah, it was trial and error. I didn't know exactly how to do. I didn't know how to, which islands were going to work better than others. So Hey, let's say last four years, five years of to cast away, it was quite tough, definitely. But nowadays it's easy. I mean, knowledge is everything for this kind of business. And now it's in, in one year, maybe we can make an island. Yeah, we can make up an island and offer it to the clients. That's awesome. So do you want to tell us how you met Maurice and Marilyn? and a little bit about their story. The story I knew since I was very young, because as I mentioned, I was a castaway lover since I was little, but uh, I didn't have the chance to meet Marilyn. I have the chance to meet Maurice. 
Once I got his contact details, then I went to visit him. We became friends. I mean, friends. He didn't have friends. I was really surprised that he was very lonely, you know, after Marilyn passed away. He was completely in love with her and he had a very lonely life. And yeah, we used to contact each other and I used to send books of castaways. When there was a new castaway coming up, I was sending my stories, you know for him to read because he was, uh, of course, he loved no, what I was doing no, in the desert islands and castaways. And we used to exchange information about castaways. And one day I decided to make a video of him visiting him there in, in the UK. And we make that beautiful video no, when he was explaining all his adventure at the sea. Maurice and, and Marilyn was a couple from the UK that in the 70s, they decided to sell everything. They, everything they got. It was more idea of Marilyn. Marilyn was a very strong woman and he was kind of more following her dreams, you know? So they ended up selling the house, everything what they got and bought a boat and to leave for the goal of traveling the world and living in the boat. And this is how they started. And in one of the first trip, after some training in the Mediterranean, they crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And after Panama, when they crossed the Panama Channel, they were on the way to Australia. Near Galapagos Island, they, they were they were hit by a whale, and the boat was starting to sink. And they have to jump into the life raft and take some supplies. And yeah, and, and they were stranded. They were adrift on a life raft for 117 days. I read your writing of the recounting of the story. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what the life raft was like. It was inflatable and it was pretty small. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the, that like? the life raft was an inflatable life raft and they were very lucky because they got a little dinghy because they saved the dinghy from the boat. They have they already had the dinghy in the sailing boat. And they were lucky because the the boat was sinking quite slow. Unlike the other castaways like Stephen Callaghan and, and many others, they always sank very quickly and they have to jump into the life raft, put everything on the and the they have a lot of time. Maurice and Marilyn have a lot of time to prepare the life raft and they have the time to take the dinghy. And they were tied on a rope, both of them, I mean, dinghy and life raft. That gave them a lot of flexibility because for fishing, of course, it's much more comfortable to be on a dinghy. The dinghy was also inflatable, but it gave them, you know, to be in the open because a life raft is covered with a roof. And of course, it's, it makes the experience definitely less hard. You know, I, there are all these stories, castaway stories, that it was really a real nightmare. At least these people, the Baileys, Maurelis and Marbris, they were together, they were healthy, and they have the dinghy, and they were in an area with a lot of fish and a lot of sea creatures and also seabirds. Near Galapagos Island, that area is quite, there's a fauna, it's a lot of fauna. And they were lucky to get so much fish around and to get a lot of birds, many birds around. They have to eat raw birds, of course. They have to get the birds. They have to get turtles, a lot of turtles around the raft because one of the things happening, normally happen in the castaways at sea, when they are in a life raft, as they are drifting very slowly, floating and drifting, 
in the middle of the ocean that creates like a kind of shelter for fish. Also, there are many little shells that they are starting to grow under the life raft, like, yeah, like a plankton and little shells. And that attracts little fish. And these little fish attracts bigger fish. And these bigger fish attract birds and turtles and sharks and dolphins. So it creates kind of, you know, like aquarium around the raft. And especially in that area, in that particular area that is, is full of fauna, they were not alone. I mean, they didn't feel alone, especially after one month. They started to realize that they were becoming kind of sea creatures as well as them because they were dealing with all these animals every day. And it was very hard for them, of course, to eat a turtle. They have to kill the turtle. They have to kill the birds. Particularly, it's called a booby bird. Uh, which is a, is a bird which is typical in the Pacific. It's an ocean bird that is traveling miles away in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And of course, when they see something floating in the ocean, they want to rest there because sometimes they don't have an island for a long, long, long distance. And as they used to land on the rife raft, it was so easy to get them with the hand because these, these birds are not afraid of humans. I experienced myself on desert islands in the Pacific. I've been stranded no? a few times on islands in the Pacific and eating birds was very easy because these birds are not afraid of humans. They are not, they're, they never saw a human. They actually don't have predators on those islands, those remote islands, because they are normally volcanic islands that they don't have mammals. And they only have birds, so they never grow up with any threat. So with the natural selection, they didn't have to learn how to defend themselves. So these birds are really not afraid. They came close to you and they can even jump in your head. And of course, they were feeling very pity to have to eat them, you know? Yeah. Such a beautiful creature, no? And they were a very sensitive couple, so it was kind of dramatic, but at the same time, you know, they save their lives, no? Because they was providing the food that they needed for 117 days. What I thought was really interesting is how they remained really close throughout the whole experience. I'm sure they had some disputes on that raft, but for the most part, they were a team the whole time. Yeah, they were having a very beautiful relationship, in my opinion. I mean, unlike other castaways, there was another couple very interesting, Bill Battle. Uh, Cuban-American castaway who was who exactly happened the same as Maurice Marilyn. It happened the same place the, with the same situation. It was a whale. And they end up stranded in the same way, but with a woman that they have a very bad relationship. And this one was French. He was Cuban-American, half Cuban, half American. And the, Bill, I met him. I mean, it was a beautiful experience to meet him in Puerto Rico a few years ago. And the story was absolutely hilarious because they were fighting every single minute. It was crazy. And she was blaming him of the what happened. No? She didn't want to go for a trip. She didn't want to live in the boat, and but he pushed her to live in the boat. So he, she was blaming him that it was his fault, everything. But they were more than 40 days. And of course, not that long, not as long as Maurice and Madeline, but uh, it was a really big nightmare. But 
Maurice and Marilyn have a very beautiful relationship and they didn't really fight sometimes, no, but Marilyn was, the roles were very clear. Marilyn was the boss and the one who was um, finding the solutions. She was really amazing. Maurice was more docile, let's say. So yeah, no, they didn't fight that much. No, I think they have a beautiful experience there at the end. I'll say that was one thing that struck me about the story is how cohesive their relationship seemed, but also just their general attitude, not only towards, you know, the sea life and the birds and the fish and the animals that surrounded them, that they just sort of integrated their existence into the existence of those animals versus, you know, taking a more adversarial approach, which is what we're used to hearing about some of these lost at sea stories that Casey and I have told. But I also recall a part of their story where Marilyn, I think it was, grabbed a shark and they were trying to eat shark. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yes, of course, they have a lot of time to improve their techniques. <laughs> and they, one day, they, it was, uh, of course, they say always sharks around the raft. I mean, I might say that these sharks are not really dangerous. I mean, just a few sharks in the world, they attack, they eat humans, you know? These sharks are probably, I mean, they didn't know what kind of sharks, but I guess it was a, just a normal oceanic shark. It was just sailing, it was all just swimming around the life raft, eating the fish around. And of course they like being near the raft because they come high, as I mentioned, it's a kind of shelter. It's a shade in the middle of the ocean and they can scratch their back, no? So sharks were scratching their backs, the raft, which it was very painful for them because they was all the time crushing, you know, bumping in, into the, down, down the raft. And as they were very skinny, it's mainly bones after two months, three months on, on the ocean, it was kind of painful, no? Because the muscles were not very strong. So it was hitting in the bone and that, it happens to many castaways, no? this kind of event, no? and not only sharks, also dolphins. What happened with the sharks is as they were sailing, it was moving around the raft and swimming around the raft nonstop. Marilyn decided one day to try to get one. So how we can try to get a shark, as they were very confident and they were becoming very wild, Maurice and Marilyn, they, they were also very wild and very strong and they were also, they were another predators, you know. She started to put a finger in the shark, tried to see if she could touch him. Yeah, no problem. The shark was not afraid of them. Every time, the, any time that the shark was passing by, Marilyn was touching with the finger, touching with the hand, you know, holding a little bit with the hand, and until she decided to take it from the tail and rip it to the into the life raft. And, of course, it was very dangerous event because the shark started to bite everywhere and it could pinch the life raft, no? I mean, imagine. But they rip it to the, into the life raft and the shark was trying bite, to bite everywhere. And with the knife, they cut the neck and they kill it. And yeah, they eat it, of course. It's not a very tasty shark meat. Probably they did it only once because it's probably the worst fish meat that you can try in the ocean. It's really actually disgusting. <laughs> Have you tried it yourself? So of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which is very delicious is turtles. Those are very delicious. This is the one they really wanted. Yeah. I mean, it was painful, of course, for them to kill them because it's a very peaceful creature, very beautiful and peaceful and naive. 
and also and they seem to be now in decline definitely it was they were feeling very pity but not the shark yeah and just to clarify this happened in the early 70s is that right this is the time frame we're talking about the early 1970s yes. yeah yes likely more turtles then than there are now exactly Exactly. Sharks are also under threat as well nowadays. I mean, but no one wants to, I mean, it's not really tasty, the shark meat. So it sounds like the yeah. process of harvesting a sea turtle, if that's the terminology you want to use, is pretty brutal with their thick skin and the shell and using probably a pretty dull knife, all the resources that they had to try and kill the turtle in order to eat it sounded pretty brutal. Yeah, it's, it was very gore. Yeah, very gore. I don't know how to say anything, but it was, yeah, bloody. It was a kind of bat, yeah. And he, he was feeling very pity for them to, yeah, to... They even used a turtle. It was some funny event. They hold, because they could hold the turtle, they decided to tie one turtle to try to see if they could be pushed to mainland because turtles, they always try to go to mainland to lay their eggs, no? I mean, they are... They are not only living in the sea, they can also go to the beach. So they decided to tie it with a rope and see if they can tow them, <laughs> if they could tow them. But yeah, it worked. They tied it with the rope and they started to tow them and it started to sail. And suddenly decided to take another turtle to help, like another horse, <laughs> and take another turtle to tie them with the rope. But these turtles started to sail opposite. So then they realized they were not really going to the mainland. I mean, they were just going wherever. So they stopped it. It's such a creative idea. The turtle that went the wrong way was like, uh -uh, I'm not pulling you to shore. <laughs> yeah, they don't even know where they're going. So that's why they stopped it, because it was maybe not going anywhere. They preferred to eat it. There was one other aspect of their food gathering that I thought was pretty interesting, given that they were such animal lovers. It sounded like they found a way to grab a booby bird and without killing it, the bird would just sacrifice its stomach contents of fish and they could eat you know, the fish for <laughs> their meals. Yeah, that that part I forgot about that part. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it was that was a very funny story because they were in the ocean so quiet. They have so much time to observe all the fauna around and uh, how they were behaving and what it was the routine of each animal. And they saw that there was this this bird is called frigate frigate um, bird, which is an, a bird with normally still fish to the booby birds, like the freak, I don't know if I pronounce it well, it's a freak rate. This bird doesn't know how to hunt fish because they cannot get wet. They can never land on the water because they will never be able, I mean, they have this kind of a skin that they would never be able to fly again. So what they do is to attack booby birds that these booby birds can fish, can go deep in the water and get the fish and fly again. So what the frigate bird do is to attack the booby birds. They start to annoy them. The booby birds get scared and they throw the fish away, you know, and frigate bird can get the fish on the air, you know, they can, before they reach to the water again, they jump into the water again, they can take it. So as they saw this, that they were doing this, Maurice and Marilyn decided to do something similar with the booby birds. Maybe if we do something, they will throw the fish because 
yeah, <laughs> they have in, in the mouth, or even they have in already in the stomach. If you start to annoy them, they will vomit <laughs> the fish, the, the, last part, the last fish that they took. So that was very funny, and I decided to grab booby bears. I say, we didn't want to kill the booby bears, because actually it was not very tasty anyway. They prefer to eat fish. Killing a booby bear was very tough because a lot of feathers and raw fish, raw bird is not very tasty. I have tried as well booby bear. I mean, I try all these birds and they are really strong. They taste very strong. Even cooked, they are quite strong. And there's a lot of work because you need to take the skin and all the feathers and it's kind of bloody and not very nice. Have you tried the trick the, to get the booby bird to spit up fish? Yeah, but not on the boat, on an island, not raw. <laughs> I haven't tried raw. It was cooked and it was okay, but it was nice. I mean, it's okay, but I can't imagine eating this raw. Yeah, they decided to grab a booby bear instead of killing him and grab it from the neck and shake it <laughs> and they vomit the fish and they take the fish and eat it. So it was kind of, of a present no? <laughs> from the booby bear. We don't need to kill it anymore. Yeah, so it sounds like it was a present on a couple different levels. And it also sounds like that became one of their main food sources is the fish that they got from the booby birds. Exactly. It was a kind of present. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah. 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 So they were very resourceful using the sea turtles as a tow to tow them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Figuring out how to steal food from the birds, figuring out how to get a good grip on a shark's tail. It sounds like maybe it was Marilyn who was really resourceful, creative. Mm -hmm. And even uh, Marilyn make hooks from safety pin. Uh, it was also Marilyn's idea. Mainly all these ideas were Marilyn's safety pin that she got for her clothes. And she made hooks, you know, and just if you see the shape of the safety pin, you can bend them and make a perfect hook. And of course, for small fish, you know, they, they put some bait from the old fish and yeah, they started to fish like that. We'll put a link to your website. There's some pictures of the fish hooks. I don't know if it's the actual fish hooks they were using, but at least what these little safety pins look like, and as well as the food supplies and equipment and the sure. map kind of showing where they floated. They covered some ground in the Pacific Ocean. Sure, go ahead. No problem. Oh, and also the video will be included on that as well. No problem. They started to row in the beginning of the, after the accident, the, from the first days. Because they were, the boat was sunk, they were shipwrecked near Galapagos Islands. Actually, they were going to pass by Galapagos Island in the previous plan, no? sailing around Galapagos Island. And when they were shipwrecked, Maurice calculated that uh, Galapagos Island was not far away, and they just needed to row south from the dinghy, of course. It's not possible to row from the life raft, no? Of course, it's not only rowing from a dinghy, then you need to row from a dinghy and pulling a life raft, which is very deep. And they, they have like a bags under. So moving the life raft, it takes a lot of energy because it really needs a lot of power to move that. And they started to row night and day. They used to make turns, like during the day, Maurice, I mean, two hours each, you know, it's also at nighttime because they saw a window of chance of being able to reach the Galapagos Islands. 
and it, they were also counting on the currents. They knew the current was going west, and they just needed to go. They were a little bit north from the Galapagos Islands, so they were planning that they would have the chance to reach the Galapagos Islands, despite they were pulling west. They were being pulled west. But after a few days trying, they need to get water from the rain, but they didn't have enough. And of course, imagine sailing and rowing at nighttime with your hand, with your with their shoulders, nonstop, night and day, without sleeping, trying to get that opportunity, but they fail. And they decided to stop it because they were really hungry. And they just gave up and wait for the chance of seeing a ship in the ocean no? and to be rescued. And this is what they actually, what it actually happened many times. They saw big cargo ships passing by, but they didn't, of course, this cargo ship never see castaways in the, at sea. I mean, this is something always happening with the castaways at the ocean. Cargo ships are normally set on auto automatic pilot. Of course, the raiders that cannot see floating plastic devices, you know, they only see metal ones. So there is no warning or nothing. So in the cargo ships, the crew normally is just working indoors and they are not looking to the horizon. A few ships pass by and two of them, especially one of them was very near, almost touching them. And of course they were thinking that they were saved. Uh, they saw us, they saw us, they're coming near. They were like waving their hands, you know, celebrating that they were going to be rescued, drinking the last remains of water from the last rain, eating whatever they have, the last supplies, you know, from the boat. Like, we are safe. We can eat whatever now because we are safe. But the cargo ship passed by without seeing them. And they were shouting and screaming and nothing. So that happened a few times, you know. That's why they started to think that it was impossible mission. I mean, they started to accept their new life in the ocean and try to focus on the life in the ocean and try to take the best for it, of it. That's why they started to become sea creatures, no? They lost the hope of being rescued, especially as they were reaching far and far from the ship lanes because the current was bringing them to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's why it was a miracle that this fishing boat saved them and after 117 days. Because it was actually in the area where there was not supposed to be ships or cargo ships passing by. So this fishing boat was, of course, trying to find fish somewhere in the middle of the ocean. And fishermen of fishing boats are looking at the sea, you know, because they need to see where birds are hunting fish of course they are it's a smaller they are smaller boats there is more action no outside they are more focused in the horizon and more in the water so these fishing boats saw them and they couldn't believe it it was marilyn that they was uh, listening the engine of a boat you know and maurice saying it was impossible because this area there are no boats i mean we are already in the middle of the ocean it's impossible we will be saved and uh, yeah, but Marilyn said, you know, I can hear a ship, a ship is coming, and they were starting to look at the horizon, and this fishing boat changed their direction, and they started to, they went to them, you know, towards them, and they were saved. It was a Korean fishing boat. That's unbelievable. And it sounds, yeah, that's amazing. What luck. Sounds like there was a moment in time as that boat passed them that they had just sort of given up all hope on that boat before it turned back as well. 
Maurice told me that the cargo boats were kind of disturbing them, yeah, because they were focused on the marine life, in the ocean life, and when they see a cargo, they started to feel annoyed, like they are not going to see us, why they need to pass by here, you know? because they really pass many cargo boats, they never saw them. That'd be so disheartening. What I think is interesting is that they were not getting rescued, but they chose life, even though they could have given up. You know, most people probably would have felt like there's no point. Why even bother? You know, just kind of lay down and die. But they chose the perspective of like, now we're just living on the sea and, you know, focusing on the positive as opposed to giving up, which is really amazing. This was more Marilyn energy. Maurice gave up. There were many times that Maurice was complaining or was kind of giving up and say, I don't mind and we're going to die and we don't care anymore. And it was Marilyn who was pushing him to continue. She was, I mean, she was the one who saved him. Uh, and he mentioned this many times. He appreciated that a woman was there in the boat because women are more... The willing of surviving is stronger on women, and they are stronger in a survival situation. So they, Maurice always say that if there were two men in the life raft, they wouldn't have survived. You know, it was, it's the Marilyn will to survive, which is a woman I think have stronger. Well, she sounds pretty incredible. We won't argue with you on that. <laughs> I was just picturing her, you know, pulling the shark, which you described as it being like two meters long or something right out of the ocean. And I thought, she sounds kind of like a badass to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marilyn. It's a pity I didn't meet Marilyn. I, I, I regret it so much that I didn't go to visit uh, Maurice earlier. I think she passed away in 2002. I was too young by them, and I was on the islands in the, during that period. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that I was going to really going to visit Maurice one day. So it sounds like after was it 117 days? Yeah, 117 days. They were rescued by this fishing boat, and this was still 1974. So they went on to, or Marilyn at least went on to live another 25, 30 years, and then Maurice passed away more recently. Yeah, I was one year after. After I took the video, or oh, one year, two years after I took the video. He was old, of course, he was quite deaf. I have to shout in the video, I mean, in some questions, because he couldn't hear me. Of course, when he passed away, I was, I mean, it was very sad. I realized, because I sent emails, and uh, he didn't reply. He used to reply every email that I used to send, and, but this time he didn't reply, and I was calling him, it was impossible contact him and I wanted to have contacts from him, like give me the number of any friend or someone because I want to, if something happened, I want to know that you're okay or how is your status. But he didn't have anyone. It was amazing. He couldn't give me the contact number of anyone because I have no friend, nothing. So it was kind of challenging to know that he passed away. I have to call the lawyers and I was calling the, the book publisher to see because probably they will know by inheritance because someone need to inheritance the rights of his book no so yeah i then i found out that he passed away then i decided to launch the video i never launched it it was no honestly it was not my idea to take a video it was an idea of making something beautiful spending nice time with him but then when that happened i thought it was a good opportunity to make a tribute for him no
for his beautiful life and his beautiful way of telling that story. No, I think he in the video is really is very charming. No, the way he talks and yeah, it is lovely in my opinion. Yeah. Well, he was so lucky to have you and that relationship that you guys formed around his story. I'm sure that meant a lot to him. Yeah, it's a pity he didn't watch that video. He would have loved it to see because there was no, I was surprised that there are no videos. It was no videos of him telling the story. It was just when he was rescued in the 70s, it was taken from the Korean ship and it was the cameras, but it, everything was very stressful there. I mean, he never told the story um you know uh, with the more in the way that he is playing you know, the story you no know, more deeply what was the experience of the couple when they came back to society civilization did they struggle going back to regular everyday life yeah exactly that is the thing in this video it also explains how much he changed his life you no know, after that and uh, he, for example he stopped eating meat after that of course he, they became vegetarians right after that when he saw the boat a fishing boat the korean fishing boat they were wondering what is going to happen with us in civilization i mean we came here a while they couldn't imagine how it was going to be life in the in land and and for them it was kind of hard to think no i mean they were so used to the ocean and so used to this life and they were comfortable in this life in the ocean because everything was going well. I mean, they got all the food, they got all the, uh, they knew all the techniques and they were already in their routine. It was kind of shocking for them to be back, you know, and to say, okay, now what is going to happen with us? And we have no boat, we have no house, <laughs> we sold everything. How are we going to start our life again? So yeah, it was a little bit struggling, but during the, the time on the raft, Marilyn have a diary. Actually, she got the diary during the trip that they were going to do around the world, no? They're going to, they have a diary like, like on board and she was able to take this diary in the, into the life raft. So she continued writing notes during the time in the raft and they, she, she actually, she write every day, everything what happened every day. And I was lucky to get this diary and take photos of this diary. I asked Maurice, please bring the diary. I want to touch it. And I want to read it. I don't know what happened with that diary. Maybe it's lost. Honestly, it's a pity because I think it will be, it should be in a museum. And in this diary that I read, it mentions the new plans if they were saved one day. So they were already planning to buy a new boat and to how it's going to be the new boat. I mean, to have some hope, no? Especially in the beginning when they were thinking to give up, especially Maurice, no? And yeah, they bought a boat. They started working again. Of course, they make some money from the book that they wrote. Uh, with that money, they bought another boat and start sailing because their dream was not going around the world, but living in Patagonia, in Argentina. And they succeeded on that. They went and they lived for a few years in Patagonia, yeah, in Argentina. And they were living on board for a long time yeah, until Marilyn was diagnosed with cancer. They were on the boat during that period. I'm impressed that they got back in another boat after that. They obviously really yeah. loved the ocean. Yeah, but they couldn't fish anymore because they were, they were vegetarians already. Right. That's an incredible story. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it was very beautiful. Very beautiful story, definitely. Yeah. Maurice uh, became deaf, a little bit deaf after the story, after the experience. 
uh, from one ear and and also he started to have some kind of thrombosis in the lungs so you see he has some problem of breathing after that actually he was the one suffering the most Madeline uh, just the only problem was she stopped her menstruation for three more months after the experience. Of course, during the experience on the life rat, there, there was no menstruation at all. Uh, but she continued like this for three more months, and but she was very strong. Yeah, that actually makes sense about the lung thrombosis for Maurice. He probably had a pulmonary embolism, which we associate with prolonged sitting. If you're kind of sitting in one spot, like a long airplane ride often is enough to do it, but 117 oh. days on a raft is... <laughs> We'll get the job done as well. I'm sure there was a... I didn't know that. It's true. Yeah, I didn't... Actually, I never found a relationship between that problem and being on the life raft. I thought maybe just because he was weak or maybe he had some lack of nutrients. But it's true. It makes sense because they couldn't move much and very uncomfortable to be in a life raft. This is also something that you should be aware because you are mostly wet during all your time, especially when there's bad weather, waves smash against the wall of the raft, the raft was already destroyed, and there was a lot of water in, and salt water with skin and with rubber, after a few days, it's just ulcers, like your skin is completely damaged. And what I mean is that there's a lot of ulcers and skin damage when you are inside the raft because you are wet and salt water, and this is really abrasion, you know, it's like really like burning your skin. It's, it was quite uncomfortable, yeah. They have problems of standing when they jump in, into the Korean fishing boat, you know, they couldn't keep the balance and very weak, you know, their legs, you know, they didn't stand much. They have some storms, very strong storms, and it was great. And they have to bail water all night long, many times, because the life raft was falling to pieces and there was no wall anymore. <laughs> and there was no door. The door was impossible to close it. So every time there was a storm, waves were coming inside the life rat and it was full like a swimming pool. <laughs> and they have to bail water all night long, nonstop. That is a nightmare. Yeah, that is very bad. <laughs> Nightlight is nonstop during two days. Yeah, they were very weak. I'm going to make my kids listen to this because they think that putting their laundry away is bad <laughs> they're like i have to put my laundry away <laughs> give them a little perspective exactly yeah i mean we all need a little bit of perspective living the way that most of us live you know we're so fortunate and mm -hmm. you know we forget that there are people out there that are struggling like this where you know you just you're down and you keep getting kicked over and over we sometimes, one of the things that our clients on the Set Islands appreciate the most when they come back to civilization is all the comforts that we have. I mean, even me personally, I love the Set Islands. I like survival so much, but it's also nice to enjoy the comforts that we have nowadays. I mean, you don't need to be in the city to enjoy the comforts. You can be in a country house far away in the middle of the forest with a beautiful environment, but having all the comforts. It's amazing to just pushing a button, switch a button and having light, opening the tab and having water, having a roof in case of big storm. All those are amazing comforts that we don't appreciate. And even, even not castaways, but let's say 
people who were born in the jungle and tribes and people that they never experienced civilization. There are a few of them. One of them is the real-life Tarzan, the Vietnamese Tarzan, that I was lucky to discover, to be with him. Once they try civilization, of course, no civilization in the city, just civilization comforts. They don't want to go back to the jungle or to the, to the wildlife because wildlife is very hard. It's really hard. I mean, yeah, for everything. It's not finding food. You know, it's a hard work every day, sheltering, getting warm uh, or getting cooler. Uh, it's all a hard job, you know, and it's definitely more convenient to be in civilization or at least to enjoy the comfort from civilization. That's interesting because I saw that story on your Facebook page and I was just wondering about how that experience would have felt if the only thing you ever knew was living on an island to come to civilization seems completely crazy. It's interesting. That's still an easier transition based upon the comforts that you're describing. Yeah, yeah. but they don't want to go back. I mean, for example, this castaway in the in Vietnam, it was, it's, he was let's say, almost born in the jungle. He was taken there when he was one year old, so he doesn't know what is civilization. He never saw a car, he never saw lights, he never saw anything from civilization, only planes flying when they pass by in the jungle. But um, once he was taken back to civilization after 40 years, you know, he, he was 41, uh, he doesn't want to go back. I mean, he will never leave civilization. You know, he got all the food, and he got the shower, and he got the nice bed, and of course, it's better. I could tell you now that being in the wild is amazing. No, it's amazing experience for a while, for a short time. But I don't think it's nice to live like this for more than a year. You know, that is is definitely better to be to enjoy the comforts of civilization. Well, the other thing about that is that I think that humans need humans to be living the way that we're supposed to live. You know, we need each other. And to be so isolated like that for such a long time would be really difficult. Exactly, as well. Yeah, we are social animals. We are not supposed to be alone. I mean, I like to be alone. I'm a person who enjoy loneliness, but I wouldn't like to be one year alone. I mean, I need to interact sometimes. <laughs> For sure. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sh you know, joining us and sharing this incredible story. It's it's cool to hear it even secondhand from somebody who heard it directly from Maurice. We appreciate mm. that. Okay. Thanks to you for your interest. Yeah. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you. As we wrap up this episode of the Crux True Survival Podcast, a heartfelt thank you goes out to our special guest, Alvaro Cerezo. Alvaro, thanks for joining us and sharing the extraordinary survival story of Maurice and Marilyn Bailey. Your insights into the world of desert island adventures have not only enlightened us, but also opened our minds to the incredible experiences that Duke Castaway offers. I mean, what a cool experience you offer to your clients. To our listeners, your support means the world to us. If you have questions, comments, or a survival story to share, connect with us at Instagram at the Crux Podcast or via email at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. For more information about Do Castaway and the adventures they provide, visit docastaway.com. Find the relevant links in the show notes. Once again, thank you for being a part of this journey with us. A special shout out to Alvaro Cerezo for his insights and to all of our listeners, stay curious, stay safe, and keep exploring. Have a great week.